Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, corporate news media have a particularly frozen narrative on Palestine and Israel. You could recite it. Palestinians act violently. Israel responds in self-defense. There are clashes of implicitly equally empowered forces. Palestinians have squandered their opportunities for autonomy because they overreach. And finally, if you have any problem with the actions of the state of Israel, that's because you hate Jewish people. The whole narrative not only summarily erases millions of Jewish people who support the human rights of Palestinians, it also makes it hard for anyone to make sense of, for example, the recent assault by Israeli forces on the Gaza Strip that was reported by the AP as a flare-up that, passive voice, left 49 Palestinians dead. The account explains that no one on the Israeli side was killed or seriously wounded, but it still tells us that it was a battle between Israel and militant Palestinians who remain defiant. Ahmed Abuznet is executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. He'll join us to talk about the reality that that formulaic rhetoric obscures. Also on the show, Andrew Perez covers money and influence as senior editor and reporter at The Lever News. He'll talk about what we should know about the unprecedentedly enormous donation, some $1.6 billion, that just went from a Chicago mogul to a deeply conservative group that is, among other things, reshaping the Supreme Court. It's the sort of news that changes your life whether you know it's happening or not, which, yes, you would think would be where a free press would come in. All of that's coming up, and we're getting right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights stated that Israel's designation of a number of Palestinian rights organizations as terrorist raised concerns that the designations were being used to halt, restrict, or criminalize legitimate human rights and humanitarian work. Ten European countries, and not for nothing, the CIA, agreed that Israel has not presented sufficient evidence for that terrorist labeling or the subsequent raids conducted, computers stolen, files taken, entryways taped up. The group's legal appeals were dismissed with no opportunity to defend against the secret evidence against them. The Biden administration says it's concerned and that, quote, civil society organizations must be able to continue their important work, close quote. And that's where it ends, evidently, hearts and prayers. Some might find it notable that the overt harassment of Palestinian human rights groups happens within context of the recent series of airstrikes in Gaza that killed at least 46 people, including 16 children. It's important to know that the crisis of occupation isn't a sometime thing, and 
that having fewer voices to hold and host debate around that will absolutely impact what happens going forward. Ahmed Abuznet is executive director at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Ahmed Abuznet. Hey, thank you for having me, Janine. Well, Maybe we should just start with what's been happening in Gaza recently. I don't say that there's been zero coverage, but quantity in this case is not so much the point as the quality of that coverage. And I'm not sure how much context there's been for the pieces that folks may have seen. Like I saw a Washington Post reprint of an AP piece, Gaza militants hold parade after latest battle with Israel. So, you know, Given that context of U.S. media coverage, what would you have folks know about just what's been happening? Yeah, the first most important thing I would share for folks who are, I think, still gathering knowledge about the issue of Palestine is to know that the people in Gaza have been separated and segregated from the rest of the Palestinian population because of a 15-year blockade imposed by the Israeli government. And even when we use terms like blockade, it's really important for us to help folks understand what that means. And so a blockade on the Gaza Strip means that Israel essentially controls everything that goes in via land or sea and comes out via land or sea. And of course, Gaza does not have an airport. You know, furthermore, when you talk about the situation of the people of Gaza, you have to understand that limited electricity 75% of Palestinian people in Gaza are food insecure. You know, hospitals and health services are struggling to operate and save lives while themselves having to worry about being bombed. And so this ongoing trauma persists as long as this blockade exists, as long as the occupation exists, as long as this settler colonialism exists. And so for the Palestinian people all over, but particularly for the Palestinian people in Gaza, An intense blockade does not allow for them to experience the very basics of life. As I mentioned, the water being undrinkable at a 97% clip, electricity being something that's limited, food insecurity, right? This is average everyday life for the people of Gaza. Now, what's also important to note is because of a lack of a actual military, you have these confrontations between these various resistance groups in Gaza and the Israeli military. And to that, I would say that the Palestinian people are an occupied population. And I think when most Americans think about Israel and Palestine, they think about a conflict between two nations, each with the military, each with resources, each with the weaponry to defend themselves. And that certainly is just not the case. And so you end up in a dynamic where these resistance groups are firing rockets that rarely affect Israeli lives. Meanwhile, Palestinians face bombardments with which we've seen, you know, over 40 Palestinians killed in this latest round of violence, but just last summer, over 260. And so this is something that unfortunately, kids 14 and under in Gaza have now experienced five times in their livelihood. Well, and just to the point that you've just made, that Washington Post, well, it was a reprint of actually an AP piece, talked about recent airstrikes as a flare-up that, quote, left 49 Palestinians dead, close quote, and it makes it sound as though violence is 
intervening in Gaza or suddenly and intermittently there is violence in Gaza. And it sounds like what you're saying is we need to think about violence in terms of a daily a daily violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this passive voice that media operates in is also extremely problematic. Airstrikes didn't just occur. The Israelis launched the airstrikes. Um, also, you know, I've been hearing many folks talk about this as a defensive war. Right? But I think, you know, if folks were to read through a lot of the nonsense, they'd find that, you know, this is a strike that Israel launched without any kind of defensive necessity, right? This was an offensive strategic strike that they started launching in Gaza, and then it escalated. And then, yes, the, the point that you were uplifting that I made earlier is that the blockade is incredibly violent. When a young Palestinian student in Gaza wants to study abroad and they're denied the ability to travel by the Israelis, that is incredibly violent and a direct result of them being Palestinian. When a cancer patient needs to access better health services in order to survive their battle with cancer and they're denied that ability, that is brutality. When a fisherman has his boats off the sea in Gaza and cannot leave past a certain radius that the Israelis grant them, that is incredibly violent. And folks, I think, are not as understanding of that when we think about terms like blockade and occupation. They don't understand how a checkpoint or a blockade being in the middle of a family who needs medical care in a hospital can oftentimes lead to death. And a trauma that, again, we have not had the chance to deal with as Palestinians because it's ongoing. Well, and I wonder what you make of the White House response then, which is, we're against this, but we're not going to do anything about it. I mean, that's how it reads to me, is like, we want to be officially on the record as opposing both the raids on the human rights groups and the attacks on Gaza, but that's not going to materially amount to anything in terms of policy change with regard to Israel. Yeah, that's right. The Biden administration is really just like any other U.S. administration in recent history. And what U.S. politicos have uplifted as their truth is that you need to walk with Israel and allow no sunlight between the U.S. and the state of Israel to succeed politically, domestically. The problem is we as Americans have no idea why strategically that makes sense for us. And so Americans, you know, I think every election we witnessed the U.S. president essentially pledging allegiance to the state of Israel, and we don't know what we get out of the deal. Um, so even if, if we did not have the perspective of the immense human rights abuse and the colonization and the ethnic cleansing, you know, we would at least as Americans be asking these questions about why is it that our tax dollars are going to this state that continually occupies and ethnically cleanses the people? And so that's why this media battle is particularly important. That's why, you know, sources like this, where folks can get a different perspective, one that's not often seen in mass media is critically important because there's a voice of the Palestinian people that even through it all is able to shift the conversation in the U.S. And that's why you've seen not only the targeting of these six NGOs in Palestine, but targeting of NGOs and Palestinian organizations here in the U.S. Before I get to any of that in the U.S., just to mention the six organizations. These are organizations doing critical work to support women organizing, right. agricultural workers organizing, political prisoners. And one of the orgs, DCIP, is literally, its mission is to defend children, right? And so these organizations are doing critical work to advocate for Palestinian rights, 
to advocate for Palestinian dignity, to advocate for Palestinian justice. And by the way, they're doing this in a completely nonviolent fashion. But the response that Israel has shown to these NGOs is exactly why we need to keep pushing. It's exactly why we need to make sure that we're involved in either BDS campaigns or Palestine organizing spaces in the U.S. who we need to donate, because if Israel's telling us that the violent resisting groups are terrorists, right? That's their terminology. That's what they label the groups who resist. But then they're also labeling the groups that are engaging in congressional advocacy and organizing and lobbying. They're labeling those groups as terrorists too. And so what that means for us is that the lines have been blurred by the state of Israel. And they're doing that because we're winning. We're shifting the conversation. Folks are seeing the atrocities that the Israelis are conducting on a day-to-day basis And they can't, from a PR perspective, continue to handle the way the conversation is going. So then what they would do is continue to label BDS as anti-Semitic and terrorist affiliated, continue to label organizations such as these six organizations as terrorist affiliated. And that way, you know, no matter how just or righteous their argument is, people would essentially tune them out. And I only want to add to that, thank you so much, Ahmed. I just want to add also for listeners that this idea that criticism of the state of Israel is inherently anti-Semitic, you can find progressive Jewish groups, you know, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice come to mind, but there are a number of groups who can inform you about how concern for Palestinian rights does not amount to anti-Semitism, and that should not be able to be used as a as a wedge to divide people in the U.S. or anywhere, that that is a false conflict that's being set up by people who have their own interests. Absolutely. Yeah, if I could just touch on that. I mean, look, we all recognize the monstrosity that was Nazism and the, I think, brutal nature of the Holocaust and what happened to the Jewish people Obviously, at that point in time, it's something, you know, we are all opposed to. And we absolutely reject anti-Semitism. This is something that, you know, various Palestinian organizations have outright issued statements around. We reject anti-Semitism. However, when you colonize people's land and continue to do so, claiming to do so in the name of Jewish people worldwide, you're actually, again, blurring the line between Judaism and Zionism. So I think Zionism is to blame with a lot of the confusion that people have around Zionism and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. You know, as Palestinian people, not only do we have Jewish folks that are in solidarity with us now, we have Jewish folks living with us in Palestine, side by side, speaking Arabic and across the Arab world. And actually, I'll note, there was a really great book released a couple of years ago by a Jewish author titled When We Were Arabs. And it tells the story of Jews in Arab lands, so Jews who viewed themselves as Arabs, who woke up every day listening to Arabic music, eating Arabic food, speaking Arabic amongst their families. And then Zionism kind of abruptly changed that across the region and, and, and of course, across the world. And so we have to reject those kinds of lines that are being drawn. Anti-Zionism is absolutely not anti-Semitism. And I can see a future where people acknowledge that. And that's, of course, going to be a future where Palestinians are finally free. We've been speaking with Ahmed Abuzned from the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. They're online at uscpr.org. Ahmed Abuzned, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. Many U.S. citizens, while knowledgeable, 
skeptical, even cynical, still work from a base understanding of how politics and policy work, which is that people, numbers of human people, want and call for things, and elected officials navigate those needs while encountering and engaging the better-resourced desires of corporations and other power players. Some, of course, are more or less in the pocket of particular private interests, but if they weren't interested in the public, they wouldn't be in public office. Well, even if you chuckle to hear that, it's still the basic working premise of how politics are understood to work. You vote for people to represent your interests, and you expect or hope or just throw a rock at the idea that politicians will care about people in the main and not just money. Whatever its relation to reality, that's the template that news media use to explain politics to us. Republican or Democratic voters wanted this or that. You can fight about it, but the understanding we're given is that we're in a fight on a playing field where whoever has the most popular support even if it's based on misinformation, will win. News media worth their salt would make it their business to interrupt that understanding and tell us how power and politics actually break down. And they have an opportunity right now with the news of the largest donation, as far as we know, to a political advocacy group ever, from a secretive Chicago billionaire to a new political group led by conservative activist Leonard Leo. You don't have to know about machinations to have them matter. So here to talk about all of this is Andrew Perez. Andrew Perez covers money and influence as senior editor and reporter at The Lever News. He joins us now by phone from Maine. Welcome back to Counterspin, Andrew Perez. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess just bring us up to speed on the reality. What do we know about this donation from whom to whom and $1.6 billion? What actually just happened? Sure. So what we've reported at The Lever uh, in partnership with ProPublica is a look at how Barry Side, a little-known businessman in Chicago, managed to donate $1.6 billion to a nonprofit run by Leonard Leo, who's the conservative operative and anti-abortion activist who played a major role in building the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court that recently overturned Roe v. Wade and invalidated federal protections for abortion rights. And what we know is that uh, Side put his electronics company into a nonprofit which is called the Marble Freedom Trust, which then sold the company. You know, the end result was a donation of $1.6 billion to the group. The transaction was structured to allow side to avoid potentially hundreds of millions in taxes, we believe, for up to $400 million in taxes. And it kept him from experiencing a big tax hit, and it preserved then the larger amount of money available for Leo's dark money operation. And we believe that this is the largest donation in, in U.S. history to a politically oriented 501c4 dark money group. Can you just explain for a second what dark money means exactly and what it means in terms of democracy? 
Yeah. So thanks to the Citizens United decision, nonprofits are allowed to engage in politics, specifically 501c4 social welfare organizations. And these organizations, their primary purpose cannot be on politics, but they can spend up to 49% of their uh, expenses on politics, and they can then fund issue advocacy stuff and, uh, and and really work to kind of build, in this case, the conservative movement. These have become a, a really kind of favored route for really wealthy people to affect political debate because these groups do not have to disclose their donors and they can accept donations of any size. So they've really been supercharged in the last decade and and become kind of a favored vehicle for the ultra-wealthy to influence politics. I was a little taken aback by seeing the term kingmaker in a New York Times story about Leonard Leo. And it seems very cynical to just sort of -of matter-of-factly toss off the idea that there's a kingmaker who gets to decide whether or not people have the right to reproductive rights because he has a lot of money. It just seems Mm -hmm. weird to hear that just kind of tossed off as, oh, hey, yeah, that's what's happening from a press corps, you know, that's supposed to be defending democracy. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I get it, right? Like if you have a $1.6 billion pile of cash at your disposal, you can do a lot with it, right? Like you could probably parcel out tens of millions of dollars every year and and just watch the actual overall pile of money grow. It does make him one of the most powerful people in politics. And truthfully, he already was one of the most powerful people in politics. Right. Leonard Leo has played a key role in selecting five of the six conservative justices on the Supreme Court. And he's buddies with the other guy, with the, the, the only one who he didn't help in this kind of professional capacity. He's, he's really tight with Clarence Thomas. So in the Trump era, he served as Trump's judicial advisor, helping select Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch, and helping install them on the court. So while he was selecting these judges, uh, helping Trump select these judges, he was also leading this dark money network that was helping run their confirmation campaigns, supporting them with, with advertisements and media campaigns, and also funding a lot of other conservative groups that supported uh, their nominations as well. So he he is a very powerful figure, but I do also understand the the point you're making, which is that it it does sound a little crass. Yeah, and it sounds like what journalists, it's not a thing that we could know. It's not a thing that we could understand about how things work. And it's exactly the type of thing that we would look for reporters to explain to us, to say, you know, you think you're just voting and that's a direct connection to the kind of policy and politics that you're going to get. But actually, there's this behind the scenes machinations going on. And I'm not saying they don't ever cover it. I just feel that most people, even smart people, would not understand how much power these folks have behind the scenes and how indirect, therefore, your connection of, hey, I'm putting down my vote, how much obstruction that's going to meet. Yeah, that's the real issue here with dark money is we, we don't know who's influencing policy, really. We, we have very little information uh, about how these groups are spending in real time. You know, it's not like they have to report. Um, we spent this much on judicial confirmations. Like, they just don't have to report that at all. 
you learn a little bit about it after the fact, like a year or two after the fact. But you, generally speaking, don't know who's financing these organizations whatsoever. That's where both the New York Times reporting and our reporting at The Lever and ProPublica, that's where we've been able to shine a light on one of the biggest known, probably the biggest known dark money transaction like this ever. When you learn about the details about it, it should definitely raise all kinds of alarm bells. So as far as the public knows, this group has never existed. It is organized as a trust. That's not something that you can look up in state corporate filings. It never registered with state charity regulators. It never showed up in any kind of securities documents. So we're learning about this group that was formed in April 2020 that saw all of this giant windfall in March 2021, you know, a year and a half ago. Again, the whole real-time issue, we don't know what it's really spending on right now at all. There's just very, very little transparency right. in this world. And they, they, you know, they found ways to make this transaction in the group even darker than what we characteristically see. Well, and then finally, I know that you've been doing press on this, and I'm not asking you to call anybody out at all, but I just would ask you, are there questions that you wish you would be asked by journalists? Are there are there questions that you wish journalists would stop asking you? You know, what would you like to see news media do in terms of pursuing this story? Yeah. So there's a few things. Like, part of the reason they were able to really supercharge this donation and, and avoid the tax bill was because in 2015, as part of this routine tax extenders bill in Congress, they passed legislation that said that there is no gift tax when you give to a 501c4 group. Like there's there's a gift tax if you donate to a political organization. You know, there's a question of why that was able to happen with very little controversy or fanfare or notice at all. But I think we've seen some coverage around this, but I guess I question whether there's going to really be sustained coverage about this donation or about how this is you know, allowed to happen um, and then how we're allowing this kind of influence on our political system. So Democrats have pitched periodically legislation uh, called the Disclose Act that would compel disclosure of donors to dark money groups that engage in politics and also spend on judicial advocacy campaigns. And all of the coverage around that legislation has been treated as like a, you know, like Republicans are opposing this. And it's, it's sort of like a he said, she said, without any kind of like context, without really contextualizing for people what this is, what the byproduct is of a system in which um, wealthy people can drop tens of millions of dollars, or in this case, $1.6 billion into a dark money group that can function indefinitely can really distort the political system and policy outcomes with just a giant pile of money. Exactly. Well, we've been speaking with Andrew Perez. He's from The Lever. They're online at levernews.com. Andrew Perez, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. So happy to be here. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you want more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.